Today on Care Under Fire, I'm with Terry Ledgard. Terry was an SAS medic in Afghanistan and is now a mountaineer and author of Bad Medicine. Welcome, Terry. Thanks for coming on. No worries, Em. Thanks for, uh, very much for having me. Tell me about your younger years growing up in those mining communities and, and what led you towards defence initially. Yeah, yeah. So uh, pretty obscure an interesting sort of a childhood. I grew up in um, in Coober Pedy. My old man was an, an opal miner. So yeah, Coober Pedy was my first uh, housing experience. So it's a, a dugout, a little bit like a hobbit, um, which, which is great. You know, it keeps you warm in uh, warm in winter and, and cool in summer. But um, that was my first house. So uh, you know, moving from there to an above ground house eventually was a, a bit of a sea change. But uh, full of eccentric characters. Um, lots of time outside with my brother running around like uh, like idiots chasing lizards and that sort of thing. But um, no, no, uh, really good childhood uh, memories there, and in uh, and in Whitening Ridge as well. Um, you know, pursuing my dad's uh, opal mining career. Um, I suppose what led me to to join the military. We've got a bit of a uh, a, a family legend. Let, let's call him in my uh, my great great uncle Jim Ledgard. So he was actually a stretcher bearer. Um, on the front line of the the Somme, and there's plenty of uh, interesting and cool stories um, about Uncle Jim that I could tell, but uh, maybe save those for another day. But um, you, you know, it's it's hard not to be sort of inspired to go down the same path. You, you know, when you're growing up with stories of uh, or hear, hearing the stories of, of someone of, of that calibre, so uh, I think that was a big influence, and, and what eventually sort of steered me towards a, a career in the military but um the final nail in the coffin it would have been a, a recruitment drive um that we had in uh in in high school where uh you know an army recruiter um you know came i think in when i was in year 11 or 12 and sort of espoused the the army's virtues and said you get to run around like a mad thing and blow shit up so <laughs> it uh it sounded like uh, a bit of fun to me. So uh, that was the final nail in the coffin and uh, it wasn't too long after that where I put in my application paperwork. Yeah, those ads really pumped in the adventure side of it back then. Hey, like <laughs> they made it oh, very appealing. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. absolutely. But, but you know what though, um, you know, reality is sometimes stranger than fiction. It, it didn't disappoint. I had plenty of adventure. It, uh, it lived up to everything the recruiter, you know, sold me about. So how did you find that initial training down at the School of Health and do you feel it prepped you for what was to come? Yeah, look, look, I do. So um, the the baby medic course or, or the uh, the basic medic course, that was nine months in Albury and Wodonga. So a lot of theory, um, you, you know, and a, a bit of prac interspersed in that as well. Um, I suppose it, I, I think uh, – for equivalence, it gets you to about the skill set of an EN with a little bit of, um, you know, pre-hospital trauma stuff in there as well. Um, so that was that was a good background. Um, I learned a lot and, and I enjoyed the course. And then um, obviously you've got your advanced medic course, which focuses more on the, you know, the emergency medicine uh, side of things. Um, so that's another three months training again in Albury, Wodonga, um, plenty of clinical uh, placements as well. In, uh, in Melbourne and Sydney. And then I was fortunate enough to get on the um, underwater medic course. So that's a, a Navy-run course, but occasionally they'll throw in guys uh, from the green machine because we, we need those skills to be able to cover the, um, the Special Forces diving capability, um, you, you know, as well as it, it does teach you a few more advanced, um, you know, trauma skills that uh, really do come in handy on deployment. It's a really coveted course, that one. Everyone sort of talks about it as wanting it in the medic world yeah 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 no it is it is and uh look that one in particular opened up a few different opportunities for me in life after the army as well so uh yeah nothing but fun things to say about the UN course yeah and you obviously I've, I've read your book and that's why I kind of reached out to you on Instagram and asked you to come on I read it a few years ago I was I found it a pretty good read actually and I know that you were training for selection back then too and you had to you were fit and you were ready to go but then you had to make the call uh, whether you went and pursued that or you went and did that underwater medicine course and then later on Afghan was the the other dangled carrot versus selection so 
pretty pretty tough, uh, big decision for a young young fella to make. Particularly, this is not you know something you just wake up one day and decide you'll have a crack at selection. There's a lot of work gone into that in the months prior. Yeah. Do you still look back on that now and think, what if, or are you, you're contented with uh, what you got out of it? Um, no, no, it still cuts me deep, that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, look, um, you, you know, to, to prepare for selection, you know, to, you know, it was a good nine months of preparation I'd put in um, before I eventually injured myself a couple of weeks out from the barrier test. But, um, no, it was a good nine months of training that I put in six days a week. It was really hard yakka. And to put in all that effort, um, I, I felt confident and I felt ready. Um, but obviously just timing didn't work out for me on that first one. And then uh, the the second time, you know, after I'd been posted uh, to the unit, you know, to put in another uh, round of training in preparation for selection, you know, and you know the selectors, you, you know, I've got eyes on the actual the, the training course, uh, you know, and I'd, I'd covered the, the SAS selection um, as a medic as well. To have all of that, um, you know, that knowledge and, and training and then not not to use it, yeah, it, it, I definitely still do wonder what if. Um, it, it's my one and only life regret is that uh, I felt that I was ready to, to give it a try, but um, I never uh, did pull the trigger. Yeah. And I guess in reality it probably wouldn't have changed your job that much but you would have had that whole you know you'd be very qualified and I guess the guys have more confidence to take you on missions early on and stuff like that but you're still doing the same job you just you got the qualification that's so coveted and that you've yeah essentially yeah I mean that the job wouldn't have changed uh too much but um you, you know just the the achievement that that was the big thing for me you know um to, to be able to go through that uh that hell hellish couple of years and, and come out the other side and say that you'd done it. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's a feather in my cap that I missed for sure. Yeah. You're probably making up for that in other ways now, I would probably suggest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, uh, that's, well, I've thought about that. I, I wonder if the mountain climbing stuff is, is my second chance at selection. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, yeah, fun, fun in a lot, of, uh, a lot of other ways. So take me back to Afghan. Mm-hmm. Um, what was your role over there and what year did you head into country? Uh, it was 2007. Um, yep. I, I went to Afghanistan. So I was uh, a medic, uh, so SAS medic, but uh, again, to qualify that, a black hat. And what that essentially means um, is that you you insert sort, sort of into the team. So you're not the first one to kick in the doors um, or anything like that, but you are a part of the team. Um, and you've got a role to play, you know, in the, the entire team's, I suppose, defensive and offensive posture. But uh, your primary role there is, is you know, obviously the, the medical support in case our own guys get injured. But, uh, you know, in, in support of that, it's the hearts and minds stuff, doing the um, humanitarian aid sort of things as well. Yeah. And I guess after a week or so of being into country, you got thrown into the trauma piece and called down to the um, US FSB for Amaskaz, mm-hmm. Afghans for SIED. Tell me about that day. That was sort of your induction to trauma in war, I assume? Yeah, yeah, it was the uh, <laughs> the the infamous finger-pointing day. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, no, so, uh, so, yeah, we were called down um, to the American Fort, Forward Surgical Base, the Forward Surgical Team, to help out with the mass casualty scenario. We didn't have a lot of information other than there were traumatic injuries. There are about, I don't know, half a dozen with, uh, you know, casualties with about uh, three different resus bays um, firing all at once um, once things got, got live. But, uh, yeah, I, I took over as, uh, as one of the team leaders or the resus team leaders for one of the bays. And, uh, and my particular guy, um, you know, as the incident progressed and we got more information, it was suspected once, once the guys handed over from the, uh, the stretcher team that they were actually Taliban um, who'd been in contact earlier that day and then had uh, swapped uniforms so that they could get uh, medical treatment, which is um, a, a gutsy move. Yeah. <laughs> Respect where it's due. Yeah. <laughs> but, no, look, my particular guy, uh, he had um, some traumatic wounds 
to his to his lower limbs and extremities, and uh, and also some you know abdo and, and facial injuries as well. Uh, just just minor on the abdo and facial. But uh, yeah, so in, anyhow, as part of the the trauma, one of the uh, American surgeons, I, I believe, is a hazing routine. Um, asked me to to check the uh, check this guy's um, you know anal tone, which I suppose is a shorthand method for assessing spinal damage or, or spinal trauma. Yeah. But uh, he asked me to check for the prostate, and uh, and in in my sort of haste and uh, you know my first real time uh, you know mass casualty situation, I forgot the anatomical positions. So. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, yeah, awkward situation for all involved. So we, we didn't uh, we didn't lock eyes. We, we didn't yeah. uh, stare into each other's eyes. But uh, yeah, um, eye-opening situation for the first one. You know, checking anal tone, and I can talk about this all day because I'm a nurse, and you know, this is our core business. But um, I think you can you can tell if someone's going to live or die at that point in your primary survey because if they raise their eyebrow and when you say through the interpreter this is what I got to do mate you think yep he's probably going to be okay and if they lay there kind of a bit lifeless and um, not too concerned about it then (laughs) then in real strife (laughs) they're about to arrest yeah (laughs) absolutely it's a a different way of checking orientation to time place and person isn't it (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) if they have that WTF look then you know they're going to be okay (laughs) So you also did, as you said, a heap of HA work over there, which, I mean, it's so varied for every rotation and depending where you are and that. But how was that, flicking that switch from trauma to going out on patrol and sort of having a role in the Special Forces team, you know, whether that be manning a gun or whatever, and then going into this quite caring humanitarian role where you were seeing people who had very limited access to healthcare and from a wide range, elderly, young kids. How is that? Yeah, it's, it's you know, I get this question a lot, you know, what, what was it like to sort of uh, flick the switch from someone who, you know, um, you, you know, sit, sits on the, uh, the happy end of the gun and, and then has to flick back to, um, you, you know, the more compassionate side of the role. And honestly, it's not a... Um, it's not as a, as big of a, a switch as, as you might think, as a lot of people might assume. I mean, the first D, well, the, the D in uh, Doctor's ABC uh, is obviously danger. So it, it fits really well that, uh, you know, when you're not doing your, your medical duties, that um, danger is the big one. So you've got to hold up your end of the, um, the defensive posture, for example. But, uh, yeah, the humanitarian aid, uh, that, that was definitely an eye-opener and that was – Probably the you know the majority of the cases that I saw were were all the HA uh, sort of stuff, and just the weird and wonderful um, you know injuries and illnesses that you see. Yet it was the the one aspect of the job that I really did enjoy. It, it actually felt like uh, even though difficult circumstances and you're limited in the resources that you've got and the care that you can give, um, it, it's one of the ways that you know you felt that you really did actually help people you know, at least in the short term on the ground. Yeah, it doesn't take much. Sometimes a packet of Panadol and just a blood pressure check and you've made their freaking day, which is just <laughs> incredible. But, yeah, at yeah. the same time yeah. you think, oh, I'd love to do a lot more <laughs> and really fix that chronic problem you have. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's I suppose, the, the biggest contrast is, you, you know, you come from a developed world's medical care like, like we have in Australia, and those resources just aren't available, obviously, to you as the, uh, you know, as the treating um, person. But but also, you know, that longer term care, um, it just doesn't exist over there. So anything you can do is is better than what they've got. What cases stand out for you in that HA space? Uh, so there, there's a couple that stand out. One of them was what uh, one of the first um, humanitarian aid uh, stints that I did, and it was. It stood out because it was strange uh, from from the start. It was a house call, so we we had uh, you know we rolled up to this village and um, and set up the humanitarian aid stuff, and there were hundreds, you know, I'd say one one hundred, two hundred different uh, people there, 
uh, lining up for treatment. And most of them didn't really, uh, you know, have much to, to write home about from the medical perspective. But there was one particular guy, this uh, this elder, this old man, uh, with, with a, you know, a long grey beard. He looked like an Afghan Gandalf. But uh, he'd been standing patiently in line all day and, and letting everyone else jump in in front of him and that sort of thing. And by the time he got up to me... Um, through the interpreter, he, uh, he started explaining his symptoms. But as I went to, you know, sort of move my stethoscope towards him, he, he kind of tried to went, no, 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 it's not, it's not me. It's it's my wife. And uh, that was very uh, suspicious, let, oh. let's say, because um, it's very taboo, you know, for a male, um, you, you know, to to see or, or touch a, a female, especially, you know, even on uh, medical grounds. But anyhow, he insisted that um, that I come to his house and see his wife who couldn't make the humanitarian aid queue. It was about four or 500 metres walk, so I put together a security team and we uh, we patrolled over to this guy's, um, this guy's mud brick house and, um, you know, en- entered through the door. Obviously still suspicious, whether it was a, you know, a trap or, you know, there was an IED or a suicide bomber attempt or something like that. So you've got all of those different concerns swimming around in your mind. But uh, no, he, he was genuine. His wife was in real trouble. So she was laying on the middle of the floor um, with what I, you know, after um, assessing her, my best guess would have been something like gastrointestinal cancer. It, it really yeah. advanced. And, um, and yeah, that one really stood out to me, not, not only because it was – you know, a, a really suspicious one right from the start to be doing a house call. But then, you know, assessing his wife and realising that she was in serious trouble and needed serious help that I doubt she would have been able to get, you, you know, in Afghanistan. But also the, the other thing that stood out was, you, you know, that this guy was a, a local elder. You know, he was one of the uh, one of the elder group. And just to have a, a Westerner male come in and assess his wife, I'm sure would have lost him um, serious credibility points in, yeah. in his circles. But, uh, you know, even through the context of arranged marriages, he, he did that anyway because he actually genuinely loved his wife. And wanted her to get care, yeah. 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 And um, what could you do for her, just a bit of pain relief? Yeah, there, there wasn't much. So it was uh, it was just pain relief um, and I gave her – I gave the, the couple – um, some dollars to to buy a ride back to the American uh, surgical team, yeah. Um, who also yeah. do some outpatient care as well. And uh, but I, I doubted that there was much they could do either. You talked a little bit about moral injury in your book later on. Do you think the cumulative effect of some of those HA jobs sort of stacked up and just not really having the full resources to care for people like you would like to? Did that kind of contribute to it or? Was it something else? No, most definitely. Yeah, that that was a big one. You know, to have all of these, um, you, you know, people who you 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 really all they've got in, in terms of medical care. If so, if you can't, um, you, you know, sort of save the day or, or help them out, then they've they're out of luck. You know, and uh, yeah, it was, there were so many people. I lost count of how many people. Um, you, you you just go, man, like. In a modern world's developed care, these people would be, you know, have a couple of weeks stay in hospital, get the treatment, and they'd be fine, yeah. you know. But but over there, it's uh, it's a completely different world. In, in terms of, um, you know, the the resources, you, you know, well, I wasn't geared up to be, uh, you know, our operation wasn't geared up for the humanitarian aid side of things. So, the the biggest aspect of that was you know, my own expectations. You, you know, it was my own expectations that uh, were unrealistic. Yeah, adjusting your own mindset to sort of prevents you getting yeah. unwell later on, but it's all good in hindsight, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, had to learn that one the hard way. Yeah, I 100% can relate, although my, my time was really different. But uh, you expect to see trauma casualties and you're prepared for that, but you, the ethical issues around kind of not giving people the care you wanted or discharging them and they've still got shrapnel in their brain and knowing that the outcome's not going to be great. But there's no physio, there's no rehab, there's 
you know, there's no speech pathology to help you talk again after you've got a brain injury like, and eat and drink and, yeah, all those things that we kind of take for granted. So, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, 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 absolutely. But, I mean, when, when you look at the bigger picture, I suppose, that's that was the intent, you know, in, um, you, you know, establishing a, a, demo, a more democratic or more stable political environment over there is so that they could develop those services. Yeah, Granted, didn't happen in the end, but um, yeah, yeah I, that that at least gives a bit of comfort as well. Is that was the bigger picture, mm, and it did improve for quite some time until the withdrawal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now tell me about your nursery patrol. Yeah, yeah. I um, I I've got to say, I did my part for Australiana on that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I. Uh, I did the stupidest thing I've ever done by trying to say waltzing Matilda, my own, uh, my own swag. But, um, <laughs> no, look, I'd, I'd been in country, uh, you know, for a couple of months at that point, been in a few, uh, contacts that by comparison were, you know, mild, they, they were fairly little. And, um, this particular one, it was a nursery patrol. So the old group of, uh, what was then four RER commandos had, had rotated out and the new group, um, had uh, had come in, so I was attached to 4RAR to help out with their nursery patrol, which is where you go to what is supposed to be a, um, a pretty safe area of the country to practice your tactics and weapons and, and everything like that before you go and do the real deal. And uh, I was lying around at the, at the front of a Bushmaster, you know, listening to an, an iPod, you know, listening to my uh, iPod, you know, one iPod right in the ear, and uh, this this gunfight breaks out, <laughs> and um, my first reaction was, "Oh man!" In all the other contacts I've been in, I haven't really had time to get any footage of a real gunfight. You know, like this this is awesome. <laughs> so uh, it, my first thought was to go and grab the camera and start filming. But uh, a couple of steps away, um, the the round started fizzing in. You know, really close uh, to to my to my feet, to my body where I was lying. <laughs> And it took a, you know, a split second. It, it felt like an eternity, but a split second to realise what was actually happening, you know, on the nursery patrol. And it turns out we were we were getting ambushed. But uh, so anyhow, once I realised we were getting ambushed, uh, I grabbed my body armour and, and gat and made a, a a quick quick race for the uh, rear of the Bushmaster, which was the protected side, so I could jump up on my Mag 58 and start shooting back. But then I realised that uh, I, I'd been resting my head against this swag, which uh, another mate of mine um, who was, you know, he was, who was just brilliant with a, uh, a sewing needle, he'd made a swag for me out of, you know, scraps and stuff that he found around the base. And it was it was awesome. It was, you know, my bed. It was my home uh, when I was out on patrol. So I couldn't just leave the swag there, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> you, you were going to die for the swag. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I wouldn't say I'd thought it through to that extent. <laughs> But uh, no, so before I uh, before I was able to jump up on on the Mag fifty eight and start shooting back, I uh, I made a beeline. It was only you know what oh, I couldn't have been more than ten or so meters. But uh, I, I ran out under fire to grab the swag, and uh, some some dude had me square in his crosshairs because he was putting in some accurate fire. You know, the angry mozzies were flying everywhere, passing, there was dust kicking up everywhere. I was shitting myself. and uh, But managed to grab the swag and uh, and drag it back to safety, you know. Um, At any point in that run, did you think maybe this wasn't the right call? <laughs> uh, not, not during the run, not during the run. I, I, I don't know if my... Um, function was braining properly at that point. But, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. No, afterwards, you know, once the adrenaline settled down, and uh, you know, we got away, I went, "Oof, maybe not the smartest thing I've ever done." <laughs> you still got the swag? No, 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 no. I don't. I don't. What What actually happened to the swag is is a mystery. So what I did because it's so it's so hard to get that stuff back through uh, customs. Yeah. Uh, what, what I did was I, I left it there. It was such a good piece of kit and I wrote sort of my name on the inside of, of the swag and just a couple of words about the story behind it, you know, and, and my intent or idea was that as new groups started, new medics um, started rotating through, they could just use it as their home away from home, you know what I mean? 
and add their stories to the inside. Yeah. Um, no clue what happened to it. None yeah. whatsoever. <laughs> well, maybe someone listening will know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I did ask a few guys who were in the rotations afterwards and, uh, yeah, they, they've got no clue. Probably ended up on the junkie, which is, yeah, a bit deflating for the for the ending of that story. But So you, you did get up on the Mag 58 and you returned fire. Was that the time you injured your hand as well? It was, yeah, yeah. So it was yeah. it was a cluster, that whole sequence of events. But um yeah, yeah. So uh in the middle of this this contact and there's you know, there's rounds flying everywhere, RPGs going off everywhere. And um so my particular role on, on the Bushmaster on this one, so I was the uh the rear uh Mag fifty eight gunner and uh I I'd, I'd pumped a full liner through, so probably, you know, over 350 rounds. Um, it, it, it was weird, though, because the Mag 58 was dialed in for, you, you know, the median range of expected enemy contact. So it was about 350 metres, and I was shooting out to oh, but close to, you, you know, more than 700 metres to a K. So... You couldn't trust the scope. You had to watch where your rounds were falling and then walk them up onto the muzzle flashes that I wasn't even yep. 100% sure were actually muzzle flashes from from that range. But, um, but yeah, so after I'd pumped all of these different rounds, uh, you know, the, the liner uh, through the weapon, obviously the barrel was white hot and I needed to change liners. So I, I ducked down into the safety of the Bushmaster hull and, and uh, grabbed a fresh box of ammo. And uh, when I got back, got back into the turret, I realised that the ammo had actually been loaded in uh, upside down or, or backwards. So you didn't have the working in where you needed it. It was at the bottom of the uh, of the liner of the tin. Yeah. So uh, ducked back down into the um, uh, into the bushmaster to try and sort that little dilemma. In hindsight, I'm going wide and I just grab another liner of ammo because there were plenty there. But uh, anyhow, that's that's the way my mind was working at, at the time. So uh, while I was down there trying to, you know, uh, with rounds spread all over the floor and trying to get the bandolier of, uh, of ammo back into the uh, back into the weapon, uh, we started retreating. We started bugging out and uh, tactically withdrawing. And uh, what that did to the Mag 58 up in the turret because I'd forgotten to jiggle it, its, uh, its housing home on its little mount. As I found the correct working end and the Bushmaster was rolling, the Mag 58 started swinging around violently on its mount. And uh, so as I ducked back up to try and, uh, you know, put the fresh liner of ammo in, uh, the, the white hot barrel came right from my face. So yeah. in a split seconds, uh, you know, decision, I, I put my hand up, sacrificed the hand and, uh, and yeah, sizzled the, old, uh, sizzled the old palm of the hand. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So not 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 my finest hour that one. Yeah, oh, well, you got out alive, and so did the swag. So I guess it's your yeah, happy ending. absolutely. Yeah. Oh, I'm I'm just um I'm devastated that the swag didn't have a bullet hole in it. You know, just to, to really drive home the story. <laughs> oh, you had a bit of other action there though as well. Your mate Todd got shot in the thigh by a sniper. In one of your positions, yeah, yep, and you treated him, um, and then you had some IED incidents as well, and Australian casualties from them. How did you find treating your mates? Yeah, yeah, that was um, that that was a different experience as well because, uh, you know, in all the training that you do and all the clinical placements, um, you know, and even the work at the forward surgical base. They're typically people that, that you don't know on a personal level. Um, so, look, there, there is an effect there, but, again, it's not as great as as people might think. So, uh, you know, for example, the uh, when our, our team got hit, uh, one particular car got hit by an IED, there were three guys um, who were injured, and all, all three of them I'd, I'd known, you know, at least for the duration of the... Uh, of the deployment, but some of them previously in, you know, training and that sort of thing. But, uh, yeah, it, it definitely, uh, it takes an extra couple of seconds 
it's just another factor that you need to be able to compartmentalize and put out of your mind. I think before you actually get in there and you know and start your protocol. Um, so in in the moment, I would say it takes a, a second or two to go. Oh shit! I actually know this guy. He's a good mate. Yeah, I've I've met this guy's family. Do you know what I mean? And then go. All right. Well, now it's time to do the best for him um, that that I can. And that's when the training, uh, the old cliche, the training kicks in, and you and you get into it. Yeah, park that and then deal with it later and um, do your job. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And that's that's how so much of the, um, the you know the medical side of the Afghan experience, especially sort of that's how I dealt with it. It was. Well, now's the time to deal with this, so uh, I'll chuck you in the fuck it bucket until later and, mm. and, and worry about it then. Yeah. yeah, as long as you do open up that bucket later and deal with yeah. it. Exactly, <laughs> That's yeah. That's where yeah. most My, of us go wrong, hey? <laughs> exactly. Mine kind of overfilled there a little bit, but, uh, yeah. yeah, you know, you learn that through experience, I guess. What do you think our biggest medical lessons learnt were? Oh, medical lessons. That's that's a tough one. You, you know, I think uh, from from the perspective of um, the the treatment that we gave, you know, so this was this was the era when uh, you know hemoclot and uh, all those different sort of um, interventions were first coming about. When you look at it from the perspective of the uh, the American uh, surgical team. And, and just the general experience that I think all of the different medics, uh, you know, and nurses and health practitioners had over there. I, I think the wartime exposure, when you apply modern principles and uh, and, and equipment um, to that wartime context, I think we developed so much uh, capability, um, you know, out of that yeah. that we now apply, um, you know, back in in the civilian world. So there's a, there's a tremendous amount of value, uh, you, you know, to that. I think. Um, from, from the medical, you know, training perspective, I've, I've often thought about this, you, you know, and obviously I had, um, experiences with, with PTSD afterwards and I'm going, well, how, how do you inoculate against that? And, uh, the, the only thing I can really think is, you, you know, during the training rounds is when you are getting trained, I suppose after your your competencies are vetted in, you know, once you've been deemed and assessed as competent in your, you know, VFVT protocol, you know, your, um, you know, hemoneumothorax protocols, all those sorts of things, is is just to really um, learn failure. You know, no matter what you do, no matter how well you execute your your protocol some people are just not going to respond and you're just not going to be able to save this life. I think that's a, a, a key element yeah. in uh, in training and inoculating people against that uh, that reality. Mm. Not going with a false sense of being able to, uh, you know, save everyone because it's not realistic. And then you exactly. don't want to beat yourself yeah. up at the end of the day when you've actually done a bloody good job in quite – tricky austere circumstances with limited resources on your own in the dust so you should be patting yourself on the back but yeah we're often our our own harshest critics as health professionals i think yeah isn't that true for sure we pick our performance apart and then yeah yeah that's a good point how did you feel coming home initially uh elation It, it was great uh, so, uh, no, no, a, a mate of mine, um, you, you know, we saved up a bit of leave and then we went to America and, uh, and Cancun, Mexico and had a, had a great big party and, and all that sort of stuff. So probably a good six to eight months after Afghanistan, I, I discharged from the army, um, a, a lot of different reasons, but the main one was I, I'd experienced everything that I'd set out to. Do you know what I mean? I, I'd achieved everything that I'd set out to, with the exception of, uh, you know, having a crack at SAS selection. Um, so from that perspective, I was I was happy to move on. I, I felt it was time to move on. And, uh, yeah, I, I felt uh, fairly well unaffected, uh, you know, by the experience for a good maybe year and a half before it really started to to you know, take off. Yeah. You're fairly honest in your book. I 
I mean, I don't know you personally, but I can tell that primarily because no one would make up personal stories that are so unflattering. <laughs> um, <laughs> so what made you decide to kind of put it all out there and and tell that story with the, you know, the PTSD bit and the whole piece, you know? Um, you know, to be honest, the, the unflattering parts, the, the warts and all, I, I never had had an issue with being that open and honest about my experiences because so many people can relate. It's just taboo to talk about. Yeah. Do, do you know what I mean? So I had absolutely no qualms, um, you, you know, in putting those even, uh, you know, un, uncouth or unflattering stories out there about myself. I had absolutely no qualms about that because I, I knew that it's that level of honesty uh, that people would, identify with A and then B go, all right, well, maybe I'm not so not so different. You know, other people who are suffering mental health issues, they go, well, look, hey, this is feels familiar to me. There's nothing wrong with it. And um, I think that's that honesty is what actually reaches people. So that was that was kind of the altruistic side of, of why I decided to, you know, to write the book and, and be so honest as I was. Um, the other aspect was, uh, was money. I needed money for mountain climbing. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Do you think it helped you, uh, putting it in words, helped you kind of process some of those memories as well and finish off recovering from PTSD? Um, not, not to a, not to a great extent. So I didn't find the experience of writing the book, uh, especially cathartic or, or anything like that. What I did find though was that it helped me organize my thoughts. Um, that, that, that was a huge help actually, the organizing of, of, of your thoughts, you know. So when you're going through those mental health issues, it's just a barrage, you know, of confusing and complex issues that you've got to tackle. Um, so to be able to explain that, you, you know, to someone else in writing re- requires a great deal of uh, clarity and introspection on your own part to be able to do that. And um, yeah. so, yeah, it was organising my thoughts. Uh, that that most, I, I think, um, would, you know, help, helped in that process, but I wouldn't call it cathartic. Were there, like, key moments when you thought, oh, I'm, I'm really freaking unwell, like when it really hit home? and that you needed to go and sort yourself out and get some help? Or was it just this gradual trickle? No, no, there, there were no key moments. So, uh, you know, the 18 months post, um, you, you know, Afghanistan and, and leaving the army, that that's the really tricky thing with PTSD is, uh, you know, I had, in, in hindsight, low-grade anxiety and depression that was building up. Um, and then, you know, the post-traumatic stress symptoms, uh, there, there were some there, but it never felt particularly bad. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like that, that's the really um, unsettling thing and why PTSD is, is so dangerous. I, I never actually felt bad. If I had felt bad, I would have gone, well, hang on, something's not right here. I need to go and get help. I just felt nothing, to, to be honest. And, and that that's what makes it such a... Um, you know, such an inconspicuously dangerous uh, affliction. Yeah. And probably the numbing effect of copious amounts of alcohol helps with, well, it doesn't help. It uh, it adds to the numbness, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. No, no, alcohol was my poison of choice for sure um, to self-medicate during the PTSD uh, years. It was fun for a little while when I first got back and I was in party mode, but uh, quickly went south after that. And what made you... Like what helps you get better? Um, so the the decision or, or the the moment that I realised that I had PTSD, which is honestly a big part of the uh, of the battle, is actually recognising it in yourself. Um, was that I actually spoke to uh, another mate of mine, uh, another army medic who was going through the same thing, and he'd been admitted to psych wards. He was getting a lot of different therapy. In treatment that just wasn't working, and he actually posted it on um, on social media, and I, I reached out to him and said, "Man, I, you know, things haven't been going great for me either. You know, what talk us through what what you've been through." 
And uh, th- this was a guy that I really respected and uh, and looked up to and admired. You know, uh, in the early days in the army, they tell you to pick pick a, a leader or a you know someone who's a higher rank or position than you and sort of emulate you know or or model their behaviour you know into the type of leader that you want to be. And he was my guy, and um, and he explained all of the different things that were happening with him. And I drew a lot of similarities um, in my situation to his, and it, you know, just reaching out to him, um, I, I suppose, in a way, gave me permission to go. Oh fuck, maybe I do have issues here that I need to uh, address and investigate. Um, so that that was a big part of it. What what actually helped? Um, so look, going to the uh, so I went and saw the psychs. I ended up refusing. I, I didn't want any medication. Um, you know, that could be a slippery slope that I didn't want to go down. I still felt that I had, I'd caught it early enough um, that I could handle it without any, uh, you know, antidepressants or any anxiolytics. Um, the, the therapy, talking about it, was uh, education for me. So I went to no more than five or six different um, therapy sessions and it was just education, you know. It was uh, learning about what PTSD actually is, how it actually affects you, and then the therapist giving a couple of different ideas and strategies and suggestions to, um, you, you know, to recover. And uh, honestly, at that point, once I had all the information, it was it was a choice whether I remained um, a PTSD sufferer or whether I got my act together and got over it. And uh, I'm eternally grateful that I chose to move on from And since that time, you've spent, um, you look for another challenge, I suppose, and you spent a fair bit of time playing in the snow. (laughs) Um, Tell me about your drive to then complete the seven summits, which is just a massive achievement. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so... Uh, a mate and I, so uh, another f- uh, former army medic and I, are climbing the, the seven summits. So that's the highest mountain on each seven continents. So we're uh, to date we're five down and uh, and two to go. I actually booked in this morning um, for Everest next year. Yeah. And uh, and hopefully uh, tick off the Everest and Denali doubleheader. But uh, in terms of the motivation for that, honestly, I was just bored shitless. You're doing the nine to five, you know. You're doing the the Monday to Friday sort of thing, and um, it just it just wasn't for me. I, I think there's um, there's a certain perspective that that I gained in in Afghanistan. It was you know having there are a couple of times where, where I thought I was going to die. Um, you, you know, it was that it was that serious in my own mind. And and once you do that, you you sort of it sharpens your perspective on on what's important in life. And the Monday to Friday, nine to five shit just wasn't important to me. It was, well, I've got a limited time, um, you know, here on this earth. Might as well, you know, shoot for the rafters. Yeah. Do you think you're always chasing a bit of an adrenaline rush once you've been at the point where you're being shot at and, you know, it's adrenaline like none other and treating really seriously injured people and seeing life and death part of it just that desire for adrenaline and that high that you get from the achievement of reaching a summit um in terms of adrenaline it's funny i actually had a this exact same chat um after i'd had a few beers over the weekend with a friend of mine (laughs) but um (laughs) but no no um it, it sounds it sounds like a plausible explanation for sure, and I, and look, I I do definitely enjoy an aspect of adventure. I, I think I'm constantly going to need to have some form of adventure um, in, in my life, but I don't think it's I don't think it's adrenaline. Um, you know, mountain climbing, or I don't know if you could call what I do mountain climbing. It's more like high altitude suffering, pain. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. it's it's just pain and suffering and misery. Um, but uh, honestly, the biggest the biggest hormone release you get while climbing is uh, is cortisol because it, it just fucking hurts. Mm. It, everything hurts. It's uh, hurts to breathe. 
you can't breathe yeah. properly. Yeah, you just uh, it's adrenaline doesn't really factor in. It's just suffering. So no, it's it's uh, it's it's not adrenaline that I'm chasing. It's uh, it, it's the achievement aspect for sure. Yeah, and once you're at the top, you got to think about I suppose not to celebrate, but how to get back down again safely before your oxygen runs out. Or well, yeah, yeah, exactly. So so re- reaching the summit. That this is probably another um, you know interesting point too that you that your listeners might might um, you, you know find interesting is that when you reach the summit, it's nowhere near the end. Coming down is actually almost as hard, if not harder, than uh, than getting up there. And it's often the time when you get into the most trouble. So there's no feeling of euphoria. Um, you know, when you reach the summit, it's like, all right, the job's half done. I've still got half to go. Yeah. I've only been to uh, 5,500 in Nepal. That's my highest. I didn't feel that great, to be honest. <laughs> That's the only... Was that, was that based no, that was, oh, it was Annapurna side. And it was a long time ago. Um, I was really young and ripped, fit, but um, it still it was painful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that that's that's high enough. Nowhere near what you, you're achieving. Have you got to use your medical skills on the mountain? No, no. Um, look, I haven't had to use my, my medical skills on the mountain. Um, so I'm purely, you know. Uh, a mountaineer or a high altitude sufferer, but um, but no, look, you, you do all, all the different mountains I've been on. You do see a lot of different, uh, you know, medical issues that happen with with people on the on the mountain. You know, there was one particular mountain we were climbing in um, in Argentina called Aconcagua. It's the highest mountain in uh, South America. And a guy that we'd been speaking to the day before, he was attempting. You know, he was in his early early thirties. He was attempting a speed ascent of Aconcagua. Um, and the, the next day, we got the news that he he uh, he died of, of uh, a massive heart attack. You know, like within ten meters of the summit, it was uh, a brutal story. Um, you, you see a lot of people with um, high altitude cerebral edema. Um, you know, acute mountain sickness. That's one that 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 I have. Uh, well, I've had touches of in the past, and I think most climbers do get it. That's what you would have been experiencing it. At uh, five and a half on Annapurna, um, that's definitely enough to give you wow. a, a touch of AMS if you haven't um, had a chance to acclimatise properly. Um, and yeah, yeah, I actually uh, I suffered frostbite myself um, when, when I was climbing down in Antarctica. I got frostbite to seven fingers. So um, yeah, I, I guess I did have to exercise my medical skills on myself. <laughs> Have you got all your fingers now? Still got still got all the digits. Um, Fifty eight and the and the cold. Oh yeah, they've caught the flogging, haven't they? Yeah. <laughs> How painful was that frostbite? Uh not painful at all. That's you it's were numb. the yeah, it's yeah. the reverse problem. They're they're numb. Yeah. Uh, to to an extent, to an extent. So you know when it when it first happened, I, I'd always heard from the more experienced climbers that if you're if you can still feel your fingers, if they feel cold, then you're all good because you've still got feeling. It's when you can't feel them that you're in trouble, right? So I could actually still feel my fingers in my gloves, um, you know, on this particular on this particular descent from the summit. But um, once I took the gloves off, they were just, you know, they were ghostly white and to tap on them felt like a, a frozen steak. I just went, oh, shit, maybe I've, you know, miscalculated this one. Um, so it, it was your fingers being numb. That's the problem. So when I warmed them up by, uh, you know, swinging your arms around to try and shunt the blood back into the, the fingertips. Yeah. That, that's when it started to get a little bit painful. It, you know, when you shunt the blood back in initially, it's like dipping your fingers in boiling water. Yeah. Fun times. Yeah. Yeah. So what's next for you? Everest next year. That's the big goal. Yeah, yep. So, uh, yeah, just got off the phone um, with the company that I'm going to roll with uh, this morning. So, looking like Everest next year, and uh, if it all pans out uh, as I hope it will, um, it'll be the Everest Denali double header. So, I'll go straight from Everest to Denali next year, and that'll be the seven done. Epic achievement, just to get to get the five down. Yeah, it's incredible. 
And how are you funding this? Are you working? <laughs> or are you just rolling in royalties from bad medicine? No, no, I'm, I'm doing very unsavoury and unspeakable things on the streets to, to fund <laughs> this operation. Uh, no, no, look, I'm... Um, I'm working on um, the oil rigs, offshore oil and gas. So I, I sold out to the dark side, um, spoke about the dark side earlier, uh, health and safety. Um, yeah, yeah, so I'm, that, that's how I'm sort of funding the expeditions at the moment. But um, once the climbing's out the way, it'll be on to business adventures. Or, or so the grand plan goes. Yeah, yeah, you do some work in that underwater medicine space too. Uh, you mentioned you use your... Uh, underwater medicine stuff you learn in the army to get you a gig on some of those diving jobs yeah absolutely um it's a it's a sweet little uh little um gig that one so yeah i've I've done sort of uh medic and, and dive safety so dual role um in the medic and dive safety uh for some nature documentaries so i've done a couple of uh great white shark docos here in uh, australian waters and a couple of years ago, I did a, uh, a whale documentary down in Antarctica. Um, you know, so su- super cool uh, little niche that you can find yourself in with that automatic skill set. Um, you know, I count myself as absolutely lucky to have gotten the opportunity to do, to do those. You know, th- these are experiences that most people would pay for, and, and I got paid to do them. Yeah. You know, it's, it's incredible. I would imagine that no few months in your life are particularly boring at all and <laughs> you've really avoided the corporate grind by going out and getting after what you want. So good on you. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, thank yeah. you. I, I don't know, the, the COVID years were, were a little bit uh, barren. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Terry, thanks for just kind of briefly sharing your story. If anyone wants to uh, read your book, where can they get a hold of it? Uh, yeah, look, so you can jump on uh, any of the big ones. You can jump on um, Amazon. Um, it was published by Penguin. You can buy it directly from their website. Um, you can get in contact with me via uh, Facebook or Instagram. I've got plenty of um, plenty of copies here that I'd be happy to, to sign and send out um, if you'd like to read that. Yeah. But, yeah, basically just jump online, Google it, and you'll be able to find a way. Well done on the book, Bad Medicine, and thanks for sharing your PTSD stuff too. As you said, I think it helps a lot of people just putting it out there and being honest about it and, you know, others sort of ticking off in their mind and recognising that maybe they need a little hand for a while to become well again. So, and thank you for your service. No worries. Thank you very much, Em. Uh, appreciate it. Thanks for having me on the uh, podcast. It's been fun. <laughs>